The Stratford Show, bringing retail into the future. Hello and welcome to The Stratford Show. I'm your host, Ang Naya. I'm also the CEO of Stratford, where our vision is the same as the vision for this show, to bring retail into the future. Every episode, I'll be joined by a guest who is leading or innovating in some part of the retail spectrum, from design to manufacturing to marketing and even to sales. We'll discuss trends, learnings and ideas and really try to figure out what the top performers in your field are doing. Along the way, we'll discover some lessons you can apply to your own career and hopefully even have some fun. All right, let's do it. Well, let's jump into it. Um, my name is Ang. I am the CEO and uh, co-founder of Stratfit, and I'm joined here by Filippo Lovari. I should have asked how to pronounce your name before we started. <laughs> have you I got it well. right? I did well. well. Yep. Awesome. Um, Filippo Lovari, who is the head of cu- uh, user experience and customer service of uh, customer service tech at Zappos. Um, thank you for joining me, Filippo. Thank you for having me. Really, really appreciate you inviting me, man. Like the opportunity. Awesome. So the, the purpose of the Shropfit show is the same as the vision for the company, which is to bring retail into the future. And so what we do is we'll every kind of two weeks, I'm invited, um, I'm joined by a guest in a different part of the retail spectrum. Now that might be brand, that might be in manufacturing, that might be, might even be a salesperson, it might be someone um, who's a user experience such as yourself. So talking to be, the people from all these different verticals, because often we do get quite siloed and there's heaps of innovation happening. But I don't think we're doing as good a job as we could at sharing it. So this is an opportunity to, to sort of do that and bring that to, to everyone, not just people in that specific vertical. Um, so this is going to sound like a very dumb first question, but there might be some people who don't know the answer to it. So firstly, mm-hmm. what is Zappos? That is not a dumb question. That's actually, that is actually a very good question. So Zappos, Zappos is probably the first shoe retailer, online shoe retailer in the United States. Uh, Essentially, at the time when Zappos was born in 1999, which seems like a century ago, not like 22 years ago, Zappos was the first, pretty much the first website that popped up as as an e-commerce platform for uh, retailers. So especially for shoes, we started with shoes. And so, from then on, we grew to become you know much bigger company, and then we also started selling way more than that. Uh, we started selling apparel, uh, uh, handbags, accessories. At some point, we also started selling uh, consumer electronics. Uh, believe it or not, we became almost like a small little Amazon, and yeah. that was right before we actually got acquired by Amazon. Now we mm-hmm. are part of the Amazon subsidiaries. But essentially, Zappos, one of the biggest, uh, and, and that's the more, the more uh, physical way or, in a way, tactical way we grew. But um, Zappos is synonymous with culture and synonymous with service. That's where really our, that's our bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Culture, because we spend and we, uh, we have always spent a lot of time developing the culture of the company the identity of the company and the culture of the company. We have 10 core values that we breathe, we live and breathe every single day. And that 
basically all teams revolve around all the entire company, the entire identity of the company revolves around that, those core values. They're all, and it's all about service. It's all about providing the best possible service to our customers, to each other, and really bring the wow to the customers, to each other inside of the company. And just to bring the wow overall as a, as a philosophy, not just as a, I want to wow someone today. That's why I guess the best example that I can bring is our customer service team. Mm. As a customer service team, we can do pretty much whatever whatever the hell we want in customer service. Now, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit direct there, but uh, as a service company, we need to be able to provide that level of service. And so just to give you an example, our customer service agents don't have a script. They don't have certain amount of time that they have to stay on the call with the customer until you know they have to kind of rush the customer off the phone. In fact, mm. the longest uninterrupted call with the same customer is 10 hours and 50 minutes. 10 hours and 50 minutes? What would, yes. That's, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's amazing. Yes. That is one call yeah. between one customer and one customer service agent where they never hung up. And the reason why we can do stuff like that is because we have developed this framework called personal, personal emotional connection or PEC, where we always try to make that personal connection with the customers that call in the customer service or that, you know, send an email or that start chatting with us just to touch their lives as to bring their wow to the customer. And we are all about the customer experience. That's why, we, again, we can afford to be five, six hours on the, on, the, on the phone with the customers. We do all of these great things because going back to the answer to your question, that's the core of, what, of who we are. We are a service company first and foremost. In fact, our tagline is Zappos is a service company that happens to sell blank. There's no there's blank. Okay. <laughs> right now, it happens to be shoes, yeah. a clothing um, accessories, but that's not necessarily the focus of who we are. The focus of who we are is the service. So this is a, this was very like long and drawn out, but I really wanted to touch on all the different pieces because it can get quite complex sometimes explaining like how, how much we really live and breathe the, that service part of, um, of, uh, who we are as a company. Yeah, that's awesome. And I've, I've read, um, uh, a number of years ago and I read Delivering Happiness, Tony's book, oh, and, nice. and that had a pretty big impact on me in, in terms of how I wanted to have like have a company and build a culture. And what we did was we crowdsourced culture from from the founding team. And as we're adding mm -hmm. more people, we're, we're going to do that again, where we're like, cool, like what's important to you as a person? What are your values? Um, you know, why did you join Strutfit? Like, where do you see this going? Um, like what, what success mean to you? And then everybody puts some post-it notes and then you bring it together. And then the operational model is driven by the people. Yeah. Um, in terms of the culture at um, Zappos, is that, is that always evolving? Because I imagine there's just so many people and there's always new people coming on board. Um, do you find that it changes a little bit or is it always set to those 10, um, those 10 core values since like, I don't know, 10 years ago or something? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's nice to have those 10 core values because you have something that never really changes. So those, has, those have been the same since the moment they were 
uh, created, they stayed the same. So we ha always have that to go back to, to that's the, that's the, nor the North star that we keep, right? So we always go back to those, but yes, of course, culture changes. Uh, and it's not just a matter of company. Culture is changes within teams, changes within even just a few people or like within sub teams of teams. So it's, it's, um, it's a very complex thing and it's really driven by, as you mentioned, the people, right? So the, one of the, one of the things that we have in place that assures that we have people that can actually live and breathe these 10 core, these 10 core values is the fact is, is really how we bring people into Zappos. So how we hire, right? So right now, our process has changed a bit because of COVID. But before COVID, when you were hired at Zappos, the first month of your employment at Zappos, you wouldn't really spend with your team. You wouldn't really spend doing work. You would spend doing what we call the new hire training. So you were uh, in a class of cohorts that will start pretty much uh, with you at the same time. And it will be around, I don't know. My class was, I think, 25 people. And we were... We had people in UX, such as myself. And then we had people in um, product. We had people in merchandising, accounting, legal. And you spend all this, this, this entire month, these four, four weeks with these people. And what you do is you learn the history of the company. You learn the core values. And you work together on these core values. And you also learn how to become a service, a customer service agent. So basically, the last two weeks of these four weeks, you're uh, actually on the phone with the with the customers. Wow. Okay. Regardless, Regardless of, of like your, you, you could be yes. a new CTO and you, you're going to be doing matter. that training. Wow. I had a general manager in my new hire training class. Yeah. And he went on the phones like with me and with a developer and with everyone else that was in my class. It doesn't matter what your position, your role is. You still go through this because... That's how you make sure that not only you onboard everyone on the culture of the company, but also you also weed out the people that don't feel that this is a good fit for them. In fact, right before the end of these four weeks, normally you're you're given an offer. You're given, I think, a month salary. If you don't, if you after all these these four weeks, you don't feel that this is a good fit for you, you can leave and quit, and you're given a month salary to do so. Because we don't want people that are in it just for just to work, just for a simple work. We want people that are compatible with the culture, that want to spend time in a company with the culture, with these people, with these principles. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And it's, I, I've read about this, and it's amazing that you're still doing that. Um, yeah. But what a beautiful way to to ensure that you're hiring the right people. Because that's right. It's always like every time you hire someone, it's it's a risk. Um, they say, what's that saying? It's like, it's better to have a hole than an asshole where like, <laughs> it's almost better to have like an understaffed team than to have yeah. a fully staffed team, but like one of the people doesn't fit. So it sounds like you guys have nailed that. Well, it's definitely one of those things that it's put in place for a reason. It has really served us for a long time. And so we keep doing that. Hmm. Um, but, you know, it starts with the hiring process. And then once you're hired, going through new hire training, I mean, it took, it took me two months. And it was, I think it was two and a half months to be, to um, me sending out an email 
applying for the job and actually receiving an offer and accepting the offer. So it took me a long time because I had to go through lots of interviews because they really want to make sure that you are, I mean, we really want to make sure that whoever we are hiring is actually, we're hiring the right person that has the technical skill set, is a cultural fit and has the soft skill set as well to thrive mm -hmm. in a, such a big company with a lot of different tensions and pools that can exist. Right. Yeah. Because at nice. the end of the day, we are still people, right? Even if you have the core values, you know, these agreements still happen. It's just, it's not, that's not a formula or like a magic formula where like, oh, now that we have the core values, uh, it's all birds and flowers and nothing bad or like <laughs> there's no disagreements or tensions. I mean, that's unrealistic, right? But uh, yeah. you still have those that back you up and um, it's, been a, it's been a great ride so far. Awesome. Cool. Well, that's, that's a good overview of Zappos. Well, my next... Um, very basic question which is probably deceivingly simple what is or how would you describe or define user experience jeez oh, easy <laughs> you think that that's an easy question <laughs> it's, it's a simple it's a deceivingly simple question but it's, it's probably very difficult to encapsulate you're right it's a, an easy question to ask it's a hard question to answer <laughs> yeah. um in the most in the most basic terms i can i can say this that User experience is problem solving. Okay, well, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's a good. It, so it, which, which problems are you solving for? Oof, what problem I'm not solving for? But, uh, you know, problem solving is, um, it's problem solving where there is, uh, degenerates or let's say, let's say the, it's so hard to really define, but essentially it is problem solving and there is a real problem and there is a process to get to a solution and it all starts with the interaction. It's a conversation between you and someone that you will likely never meet that can happen on the Zappos website, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know all the customers at Zappos. The only reason I, the only way I talk to them is through the website, through the interactions and the designs that I create. And I want to solve and was like, I want to use those designs to solve their, pro their problems. Um, if they want to come on Zappos because they have certain shopping needs, I want to make sure that I understand those needs and I present the design to them in a way that it's seamless for them to solve their own problems using the designs that I put in front of them. That's, uh, I guess, the best way I can, uh, I can describe it. When you're talking specifically about the problems that I solve, so being in the customer's uh, in the customer service technology team, what I do all day, every day, is create the products and the services that our customer service agents get to use when solving customer problems. So imagine being, being an agent, you open the customer service tool that shows like all the orders and everything about a customer account, and um, you help the customer with a return, an exchange, maybe placing a new order, or you help them shop through the tool that I create. So. Technically, I'm not solving a direct customer problem. I'm actually doing something that I will argue is a slightly more complex, meaning that I'm solving a problem from someone that's going to solve a problem for someone else. So it's like a, a chain of <laughs> problems that I'm solving. Um, so that is essentially what I do every single day. And that's the, I guess, the shortest possible answer that I, that I have for you. Awesome. No, that, that's a that's a very good summary of what was uh, perhaps a, a tricky question. Um, 
you mentioned i think you mentioned design process for for those unfamiliar with um perhaps even design thinking i think most people probably know what design thinking is now but what what is design process specifically for user experience so say i'm a say i'm a retailer who's who's doing relatively well so i've got like a 10 million dollar revenue brand and like i've got like things are usually templated. So it'll be like a Shopify website and I'm, I'm doing what most things that people are doing, but for, for a company like that or a retailer or a person like that, how should I be thinking about the design process or how should I be thinking about improving my, my website or my customer experience? That that's a good question. So the first thing that I will say is you need to understand your customers. You need to have a, an ear to the ground when about your customer, you need to understand what they're, what their problem that they're trying to solve that you are good enough to provide a solution for because actually you're making some revenue. So it means that you're actually solving some level of problem, right? Mm -hmm. So, and it all starts with that. Without any knowledge of their, your customers or potential customers, you can't really find solutions because you will be creating a solution in search of a problem, which is the most backwards way of doing things. It's yeah. unlikely to succeed. And if it does, it then could lead you to the perception that, hey, I can do this again, which is even more unlikely. So it's always good to start with understanding your customers well enough to where you understand via their feedback, the way they behave on the website, the way they shop, different type of signals. They tell you exactly what problems they have that they are trying to solve. And you are providing this platform from them to solve them. So once you know that, then you well, let, let, let's let's stay on that one for a little bit and let's just deep dive on how how someone would attempt to understand their customer so again let's mm -hmm. use that 10 million dollar retailer right um, or up to 100 million if you want to maybe that person is now in-house um so how would i go about understanding my customer because at zappos you know you've got millions or hundreds of millions right. of customers you can't talk to all of them are you doing sample groups like how does one go about trying to understand the customer and and ask them what their problems are yeah, that is a great question. So before I get into uh, dive deeper into that, I want to mention that when I say customer in this context, I'm talking about the user that goes on Zappos.com and purchases something on Zappos.com, whether it's their first, their third, their tenth time, doesn't matter. So it's someone mm -hmm. that purchases on, on Zappos. So that's okay. the customer. So we have mechanisms in place for us to understand their behavior, their attitudes, and they are both qualitative and quantitative types of mechanisms. When I say qualitative is, um, a qualitative type of uh, feedback that you can get is when you interview someone. So they give you their opinion, they give you, they tell you what, uh, what their problem is, they give you that level of qualitative. It's qualitative because it's likely limited in number and it's mostly about the quality of the feedback that is given to you. And then there are quantitative mechanisms such as analytics, such as Google Analytics or yeah. other type of more um, quantitative type of, uh, um, again, for lack of a better word, mechanisms. So that's where you see the data coming in, is in numbers, right? So for instance, this, this button has been clicked a thousand times and this other button has been clicked 1,100 well, times. Felipe, so if you could pause for one second, my freaking these have just dropped down oh, okay. <laughs> i'm just gonna get the backup just give me one minute. oh yeah no Sorry problem about that no problem um, just... 
There we go. All right. God. What a mess. Okay. We're Dude, back. I have a, I have a podcast. I've been in, ex in the exa exact same situation. You don't have to, <laughs> I totally understand you. I totally empathize with you. Um, I'm going to say something really mean, but, yep. uh, for once it's nice to be on the other, on the other end of the, <laughs> of malfunction of technical difficulties. Yeah. But, <laughs> no doubt. This is what I get for trying to do anything wireless. It always breaks. I, I used to use these as my, uh, headphones. Um, but, uh, yeah, they are wireless and they died on me once. So I had to do the exact same thing. And I said, no more. And yeah. I got this one. So I totally get you. But anyways, let's, let's quickly go okay. back to what we were talking about. Um, so you were asking, how can you measure or how can you, um, hear from your customers? And so I was, I was saying that there are two ways that normally people go about when trying to understand their customers better. So there is a qualitative and a quantitative way of doing it. The qualitative is anything that has to do with interviews and the quality of the feedback that is given to you as opposed to the quantity. So it's definitely going to be uh, less and sometimes more anecdotal. But then you have, you have the other end that is the quanti quantitative side of things. And that's the big numbers that come in from, say, Google Analytics, right? Where you put an event or a trigger on a button or a trigger on a, say, checkout form. And then you realize that, hey, 50% of my customers don't fill out the entire form. There might be a problem there. Like, why are they, aren't they filling it out? So that kind of spurs the qualitative side of things. Now you want to interview some of them to understand exactly what's wrong with what's presented to them and why are they, aren't they filling it out? And you might find out that, hey, you were looking at it from your desktop and everything is fine. But if you open your website on your phone, Half of, the, half of the checkout form was like all messed up and they couldn't really tap on, on anything. And you're like, oh my God, how much revenue have, have I just lost there? So you go yeah. back you, and refactor the entire thing to make sure that everything goes well. And that's just an example, but it brings up the, the, the point of you need to not just do these things periodically. You need to constantly monitor how your customers are doing. You need to have mechanism in mechanisms in place that constantly tell you how well or how what, like where the problems are, not just uh, by having maybe some UX folks on your team or worst case scenario, contractor UX designers that actually come in and can monitor uh, your, uh, your usage. Or, uh, if there are any issues, they can actually interview your customers on your behalf, but also quantitative mechanism. So do you have an analytics team? Do you need an analytics team? Like, are you able to have all these triggers and events on your website that can tell you where the problems arise whenever they do and can, in a, in a way, diagnose maybe the, the quantitative side of the problem? And then the beauty is that when you merge quantitative and qualitative, then you have this beautiful picture that tells you exactly the points to at least what the problems uh, could could be. There is also a very proactive way of doing this with other types of uh, studies. Now, I'm not a user experience researcher. If you want to talk to a, a UX research guru, I can uh, send you, I can uh, refer you to my head of user research at Zappos. Uh, Alex Genoff is an amazing uh, user researcher. He has done a lot of different studies and he can speak to this much better than I can. Okay. But um, we, we partner, Alex and I partner. He figures out these things. He does the, the ethnographic studies. He does the at-home studies. And he looks at the trends and understands exactly. Uh, he creates personas. 
and he understands exactly who our customers are, what they're trying to do when they get on Zappos, and what type of behavior and attitudes they likely have when they, once they land on Zappos. And on my end, what I'm trying to do is to, now that I understand my customers better, create better experiences, more seamless experiences for them. That's where, that's the how our relationship between research and design works. And I hope I also answered your question along the way. Yeah, awesome. Um, so we were talking about the design process and, and I interrupted, you know, I was like, let's, how do we understand customers? Um, yeah. So, so once we have understood our customers, what, what is next in, in that design process? So again, let's use that $10 million retailer yeah. as an example. They've, they've looked at their Google analytics. I think everyone has that. They probably have some tracking pixels. Maybe they're looking at Facebook data and then they go speak to their customers and they find a problem. Uh, what, what next should they do? Then you have to define what problem you're, you're about to solve. Because when you, once, you, once you talk to your customers, once you run those, uh, the analytics, you're going to find a number of problems. It's unreasonable to think that you have only one problem okay. <laughs> to solve on the website. Um, so there are going to be different issues. And you have to define which one or which ones you're going to go after. Right? There are different ways you can do that. But essentially, you have to come up with what we call a problem statement. Uh, in the case of the checkout that I was mentioning before, right? We want to understand like uh, how may we improve the checkout experience, or how may we may we might uh, create or build a seamless checkout experience, right? So that's the focus. By defining what problem we are going after, we have a focus. Now we know the checkout is the thing we are going after, and so now we can do some more. Um, work to figure out exactly what what we're going to solve. And that's when you enter the ideation phase. So we looked at understanding our customers, which is empathizing, right? Then we look at defining what problems we're going after, which is the, the definition phase. Mm -hmm. And now we are getting into the, the first of the design phases, which is the ideation. So right now we have to work with a lot of quantity. We have to ideate and create a lot of ideas on solutions, right? Now that we know what we are going after, we have to generate as many ideas as we can, um, sketch as many ideas as we can about solving this thing. This is going, this is normally done absolutely in lowest possible fidelity because you don't want to spend a lot of time on these ideas yet. Mm -hmm. First, you need to generate a lot of them. And then what do you do? You go back to your customers and you test these ideas with the customers. And the ones that, or one or ones, depending, the win, then you start refining them. And, and then the prototyping phase comes into play. And now you create full-fledged designs, you spend hours on those, you make sure that everything matches. If you have a design system, you apply the design system. And then you go back again to your customer now that everything is defined and it's high fidelity and test it again. Does this work? Is this usable? Is it pro providing a solution to them? If not, what can you iterate quickly on to launch it and test it with the larger market? And then once you have a good enough, um, I would say a good enough prototype, then that, that your customers are definitely signaled that it's actually solving a problem, it's providing value, then you go to your developers and have this developed and launched. And in that phase, it's really important to put, to put in place those quantitative mechanisms. Also ask, talk to your developers and have them put all these you know, pixels or whatnot in place where now that this thing is live, 
you can actually gather even more feedback to see, okay, my preliminary research tells me that this thing is going to work. Let's quantify if how much is this, is this working, right? Uh, how, how much of a dent is this putting in my whatever metrics that you have identified in the uh, definition phase that this, is, this was going to hit, mm-hmm. the success metrics. That's awesome. And it, it seems that whole process is very user-centric, right? It's, it's user experience. So they're involved in almost every step of that journey. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about it. We do this so much in many other things in life, but we forget about doing it sometimes in business. Like how, of course, like we are in business because people, uh, in particular, the scenario of a retailer, like we are in, in business because people buy from us. Like, why should we box them out of the of the process of building the platforms that they are going to use to buy from us like we should they should be as involved as anyone else almost of course they're going to be to certain to a certain degree right it's not like they're going to be in the building with us uh, all the time and you know hand holding us but i'm i'm saying why wouldn't we want their opinion throughout the, this entire design thinking process right mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah absolutely and so you mentioned, you used the phrase earlier, I think surprise and delight. And I, I might've also seen it on your website. How, <laughs> how do you get to that, that moment of surprise and delight? And, mm. and perhaps um, a good way to do it might be to tell a story about where you, you created a solution which, which did surprise and delight. Um, yeah. Yes. So let me, it reminds me of a question that you're asking in interviews. Can you tell me of a time where you were able to surprise and delight with a solution that you came up with? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so absolutely. And honestly, the only way you can do it is if you know what the problem that you're solving for. You can't really surprise and delight if you are shooting in the dark. Imagine being a, a, a blind sniper. I mean, good luck. There is a chance that you're going to surprise and delight, but like, what are the chances that you're going to miss? Because you have no idea what you're aiming at because you don't know the core of the problem that you're trying to solve. But now if you do know, uh, for instance, let me see. Um, So one of the things that um, I worked on is this new customer service tool that we created for our own customer service agents. It's a long story as to why we did it, but we did it and it's very successful. One of the more successful features that we released early on that brought that surprise and delight was unsubscribing customers from emails. And now I'm, I'm talking about it, and this sounds boring as hell. Like, why would subs- unsubscribing customers from email be even surprising and delighting anyone? I'm telling you why. Because normally it will take agents, um, I think, an average of a minute and a half to only navigate the system to do that. So imagine you're an agent and you're sitting there with a customer that is angry that is, is receiving all these emails that they don't want and is asking you to unsubscribe them and it's taking you forever to figure out how to do it because there are three different tools that you need to use to unsubscribe them success- successfully from all the emails, right? So what we did is we did the interviews early on to understand all the different problems that we were trying to solve for the agents. And we realized that every time we did shadowing sessions with the agents to see what, how they behaved uh, with the, on the phone with the customers, we will see that it will take them forever to unsubscribe them from emails. They will have to go outside of their 
their main tool. They will have to create and open another another tab, and then sometimes they will like trip over tabs and go on the wrong tab, and then finding the right tab. So it was a mess. Yeah, so and all, all that would be pretty frustrating when you have a, yes. a customer who's who's you know also frustrated on the line. Exactly. So what we did is we consolidated everything in the same exact tool where they look for orders, where they have customer information. So imagine this, you open your tool, you log in, and all the, all the options are there. So you don't have to go anywhere else. And we not only did that, but we also made it uh, like one click instead of a series of different clicks. So when we looked at the metrics, we went from about, what was it? 97, 98 seconds on average, down to eight, eight seconds. Wow. Wow. Okay. So here's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> Again, unsubscribing, if I only tell you that we help the agents unsubscribing the customers from the email, sounds so lame that you want to kill yourself, right? <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, but when you look at the metrics and how much time we were able to save only because we empathize with them and we really dig, did dig deeper on understanding how they behaved and what problems they were trying to solve, then we brought that to them and they really thanked us. They were like, oh my God, thank you so much. Now this is all contained here. I have my little, um, uh, what was it? Like a drop-down menu that I have on, my, on this side. I don't have to go anywhere else. Thank you so much. It's a small thing but it made their life completely, I want to say completely different, but it, it made their life better. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And, and it feels good, right? Like we get, we have a feedback um, just at the end of the tool. If you want to on, on our platform, people can just leave feedback if they want. And you'll get comments through and people are like, wow, like this was awesome. It was so easy. It did everything I expected it to. And it just feels good when you create something yeah. and it works, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because you know that these, these are people, they have a life. Like outside of customer service, they wake up in the morning, eat their breakfast, uh, bring their kids to school, and then get to work. And after work, they have a life. So if work can be easier or can be, um, I would say, less cognitive uh, heavy and could be a little bit more, they can actually make that personal emotional connection better because now the system is not working against them, but is working with them. That's, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. that's a that's, that's a huge win mm -hmm. for us for the agents and eventually for the customer that sees the benefit but doesn't understand why the agents are so the agents are so um, relaxed and willing to make that connection with them mm. so awesome. it trickles down yeah um let's let's switch i think we have a pretty good understanding of of zappos now and and of of custom uh of, of user experience and, and the de that design process um let's focus on I guess the retailers which will be listening and and I guess what are some common mistakes that you see that retailers make when they're thinking about user experience or perhaps even about the user experience that you, you see when, when shopping with retailers? Uh, mistake number one will be not think about user experience. <laughs> <laughs> Skipping the user experience altogether. I would say that's definitely one where you are not your customers, right? So you are... you the founder, the CEO, you're not necessarily your customer. So you need to have a good understanding of your customers. You need to be humble enough to understand that there are others out there that feel differently about your product that may think that your product sucks or may think that your product is great, but you need to understand them nonetheless. And you need to understand how to take a suck from a suck to a amazing 
uh, <laughs> and everything in between. So that's we that's mistake number one uh, to me. Um, just because just not being user centric enough. Um, another thing that I've seen overall is thinking that more product equal more customers. Mm. That's not necessarily true. Uh, if you acquire product in a silo without, without knowing exactly what you're doing is just to have a specific brand that you think that are going to attract your customers, that may not be the best way of doing it. I think, again, going back, and I'm going to sound like a damn broken record, man, but yeah. uh, I don't know what to do. That's, <laughs> I, <laughs> um, but not knowing what your customers, what the problems that you're solving for your customers is going to bring a, a host of different issues, like uh, acquiring the wrong brand or brand that doesn't resonate with your customers because you think that it's a cool brand because you think customers are like you. Mm. Uh, and then it turns out that maybe it's a questionable brand or a brand that customers couldn't not care less about having on your website. That's also a big one. Yeah, mm. definitely. I see. And then I guess what's some, and I, I feel like you might, you might just be like, listen to your users as, as the answer, but <laughs> what, what is some low hanging fruit that retailers could go off and, and win right now? Um, again, somewhere between 1 million to even a hundred million dollars in, in revenue. Um, yeah. What, what's just like really low hanging fruit? You're like, this is, think about perhaps when you look at a website, you think about a brand or a retailer and you're like, Oh, this is so easy. Why don't they just, why don't they just do this? Um, because it would be low effort and it would be high reward. Um, what would be some of that low hanging fruit? I mean, the first thing that, the first thing that comes to mind, and I mean, unless, I mean, if you have not done this yet, it's not my fault, but, uh, adapting to adapting to COVID mm -hmm. and I was catching myself there because more than adaptive adapt to COVID is understanding how COVID has changed the behavior of your customers. Uh, sometimes retailers tend to look at what another retailer is doing to adapt to COVID and they do the exact same thing mm. instead of looking what the customers, how the customers are behaving. And so we tend to be reactive. Uh, and I don't know, uh, this new retailer has this new feature on their website and uh, I want to do the exact same thing because uh, I think it looks cool. I think that they're gaining a lot of customers because of that. I want to do it too. Mm. That may not resonate to, to your customers particularly. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, that speaks to two things. One is uh, understand how the purchasing behavior and the, the shopping behavior has changed during COVID. And two will be be proactive because innovation comes with proactivity. Uh, if you react to something, you react to maybe someone that is innovating. So you're not necessarily innovating. You are actually going after something that is ex exists, out, out, ah, exists out there already. So mm -hmm. to create that innovation, uh, ingredient number one is understanding your customers. And ingredient number two is sometimes take big bets. That's one, one of the things that uh, Bezos says, you know. Take uh, you know, go for the big bet and uh, see what what happens with that. Because mm -hmm. sometimes it doesn't pan out, but the learnings that you have picked up along the way are going to be essential in iterating and creating something that actually works. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not just about 
being so customer obsessed that you're almost paralyzed to do whatever your customers want and not even not never color outside of the line. But uh, it's actually as long as you understand your customers, taking those big bets is also not just uh, it's desirable, right? Yeah. Um, so not being and retail is is a lot of about that. Like there's a lot of uh, oh this retailer is doing this, so I want to copy them. Or oh, this website looks cool because. It has the menu that works this way, so I want to copy them. Or their product page of this website, they have this feature here that does this, so I want to copy them. It That gets old and becomes reactive, and you're never going to be... You're always catching up to someone else. You're never mm-hmm. going to be a trailblazer. And Zappos became a trailblazer because of that, because we did our thing. And people, to this day, people still copy our customer service philosophy and our customer service practices because we trailblaze we were the first ones to, to, to do that so if you want to be the one to do that it, i think it's knowing your customers first and and then as you provide solutions to the very problem the very real problems that your customers have you know in innovating by trying to you know there are lots of ways to innovate uh, i would recommend to read um oh my god now I, I can't remember his name um Oh, yeah, you have to cut this out, cut this pause out. But uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. So reading, reading everything that you can possibly read by Roberto Verganti is going to be great. He's a a design professor um, from Italy. He teaches in Stockholm, but he's all about innovation. He, he has written a lot of different books about innovation, and. He talks a lot about the innovation of on meaning. So the difference, for instance, in the early 1900s, candles and candle companies were all about the, the sustainability of the flame and how it was scentless and how uh, not just the sustainability, so how long the flame could last of a candle, but also how much light it would bring to a certain room. Because at the time, uh, electricity was not really great and candles were the main source of light Mm -hmm. but then fast forward to the 70s the 80s or even the 50s like that we don't need candles anymore we have electricity right now so who cares about candles but so companies like the yankee candle company they changed the meaning they went from a tool that it's used to create light within a room or bring light now it's a it's more of a atmosphere builder so -hmm. you have scented candles right and they are not about necessarily about light, but it's about the atmosphere. Like when you turn on a candle, whether it's your uh, holiday, so you have Christmas or it's a romantic situation, it, it's the scented candle has changed from the original use that it had at the beginning of the 1900s. Mm-hmm. That's an innovation on meaning because you change the meaning of the candle. So there is a lot of that that is still available out there today. But if you keep catching up to your competitors and going after something that they have created, because that's to have it on your website can't innovate on that yeah well, that makes perfect sense and i mean we, we could talk the same thing about shoes where shoes obviously started off in the beginning as a very protective like we need shoes just to to be able to walk and now there's shoes for everything and, and they have mm-hmm. different meanings as well um so that's awesome all right roberto verganti i'll uh, i'll put that in the notes as well for people oh you got it. it yeah pronunciation is really good man <laughs> nice thank you um i also have the i think i have the pronunciation of capsburger i was looking on on your website and um i didn't get the first two. i think it's like sure i missed the first two parts but it was the classical um guitarist 
um, Capsburger. Mm-hmm. Have I got that right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's some good stuff. I was listening to it preparing for this podcast and I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> so that's, that's on my Spotify playlist now. Um, for a, uh, for a retailer, at what point do you think they need to have a dedicated user experience in house? Uh, it, it would be, I think, easy for, for people listening to this to be like, oh, cool, Zappos is a multi-billion dollar company. Of course, right. they can afford to have someone like Filippo. Um, but yeah, at, for a retailer, at what, like, how do they dip their toes into the user experience um, waters? Right. And at what point should they, should they commit and, and just hire someone? I think it's good to have someone early on, as early as possible. And you can hire a generalist, someone that can do some research, some design, that has an understanding of a little bit of marketing. Uh, so a generalist will uh, will do just well, but uh, it's good to have someone that you can strategize with right at the beginning because depending on how long they've been in the market or how long they've been in their career, they are going to understand uh, product design and the needs of a, the needs of a product. Uh, and so you're going to be able, as a founder, you're going to be able to bounce ideas off of this person and quickly um, iterate on things. So. I'm going to say something that I may regret one day, but I'd rather have a designer in-house right away and hire an offshore dev company than the other way around. Mm. Um, and the reason because, is because once you bring in a designer, um, they're going to be able to work with you, sync with you, and produce the not only help you on the strategy, but also on the designs so you can work together and they are going to be able to create prototypes that look exactly like a working website or app. And you're going to be able to test that a lot and cheaply, quickly, uh, and then go to, say, a dev, a dev firm and ask them, hey, I want this to be coded. I want this to be developed. Mm. Uh, if you have something like Spotify, you don't necessarily need a lot of, uh, right off the bat at least, you don't necessarily need a lot of dev uh, power. So probably one of the, depending on how your, your skill set in marketing is, if you are completely new to marketing, I don't know if, you, if a marketing person will be better than a UX person, but I will say, I will still go, I mean, I'm, I'm totally biased here. Man, <laughs> so I, I always go for the UX designer, but uh, yeah. hiring, hiring a UX designer that knows, especially if they have worked with uh, startups before, they know they have some marketing skills. So they, they're, they're going to be able to understand the product strategy and help you create the product strategy. And so then after this, they're also going to be able to create those prototypes that you're going to be able to test and validate. So you can do the entire lean thing, the entire, yeah, I mean, the entire lean approach with hiring, uh, only hiring that one person. Mm. Right? And you, you would recommend the same for, for, for retailers who also are, are thinking about wanting to improve their user experiences. It's just like get someone as early as possible and, and work with them. And usually they have agencies yeah. doing the dev work anyway. Yes. I will recommend to have people in house that do the design and that do the UX design, make them accountable, make them uh, um, owners of mm-hmm. stuff. And they are going to be able to, uh, to give their best. The, yeah. There's nothing more cra- crushing for a UX designer than uh, having to produce only the designs and not really owning anything and mm. being told what to do. Because at the point, like you are just, you just need a production artist or a production designer at that point. Yeah. But working with them and working, uh, having them give you feedback and all of that, that's also vital. So I will recommend absolutely to hire uh, an eager 
fast, quick UX designer that can help you with those, the, the first rounds um, that you need, desperately need to, when you need to validate stuff and then, yeah, build the team from there. And uh, if you have the means to hire more right away, I will still start with one and then see how this person, maybe someone that is a little bit more senior mm. that has some experience leading and see how this person scales the team, give them the um, accountabilities, limitations, some funding to figure out how they can do it. And then uh, ask them, we're going to wait for them to come back to you for, to ask for more money because, uh, or justify their hiring needs or anything like that. Mm -hmm. That's how I would do it. Awesome. Cool. Um, let's talk a little, little bit about um, career stuff. So I had a look mm -hmm. at your background and, and you've been in the, the user experience world for something like 16 years. Yes. How, how did you get started? And it, it's, I imagine it's changed a lot, right? Because when you started, the freaking smartphones weren't a thing. So, <laughs> so I can I imagine it's Thanks changed a lot me how, Reminding me how old I am, man. Or how, or how far <laughs> technology has come in such a short period of time. I like the spin. Yeah. Like <laughs> um, so yeah, I, how did you get started in it? And then that's going to probably be a long answer, but once we get to the end of it, if, if someone is now either at university or perhaps in some other career role and, and they're interested in UX, how would you suggest they get into it? So let's, let's do the first part first. Like yeah. how, did, how did you get into it? So I was born and raised in Italy. And the cool thing about Italy is that you pick your major in high school, which is very different from here in the United States where you pick your major in, uh, in college. college. Yeah. But you pick your major in high school and so throughout the five years of high school, you still get that, you still get a, like a, uh, a sense for what you can do with that. Like I chose art high school, which mm -hmm. when I say it here in the US, they are look, they're always looking at me like, what? Art high school? And within that art high school, you also have a specialization to choose. And I chose graphic design. So right after high school, I just kept doing graphic design. I tried, I go at college at psychologist. Um, uh, but, um, psychology just didn't work out for me. There was too much statistics and I sat down and I was like, okay, Filippo, we have been in school for 13 years. Uh, that was mandatory. Now that I can choose whether or not to keep studying, I don't want to spend one more second doing something that I don't enjoy. And so mm -hmm. I just quit college and I went full on, uh, to get an internship in graphic and web design. And that's exactly what I did after after six years of graphic and web design, I moved to the United States. And because the United States are so advanced in, the, in when it comes to technology, I was able to specialize in UX. And um, that's pretty much how it started and how it progressed. But I have, I remember being in middle school and looking at uh, photos of the house on the waterfall by Frank Lloyd Wright and being impressed by the design of those things. And I, and I always thought, oh my God, I want to design stuff when I'm, when I'm an adult, when I'm, when I'm a grown up, I want to design houses. Mm. I didn't end up that way, but design was always something that I wanted to do. I'm a builder, builder at heart. And so I, that's just I, how I uh, express myself, I guess, with designing stuff instead of building it, but it's still like a way to build it anyways. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that would cover i mean there's a lot more than i can say but um in the interest of time uh i would just keep it to that length and then mm -hmm. second question that you had with which was about someone wants to start nowadays 
right now there is a lot of demand for UX. It's blowing up. This is the best possible time in history to start your UX career. There is a ton of boot camps out there. There are a lot of uh, courses that you can take. And uh, right now, some colleges are offering different types of UX um, certificates. Some are trying to create actual proper degrees, so like a bachelor degree. There is always uh, human-computer interactions that is, uh, I think it's actually a full-fledged master that is pretty cool to take and then move into UX. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of opportunities. Um, can I just plug something in? If it's your podcast, please do, because I was about to do yes. it as well. <laughs> <laughs> great timing. Great minds think alike. And yeah. um, <laughs> so I'm actually, I have this podcast called The Industry of UX, which is theindustryofux.com, by the way. And season two is all about UX hiring. So we cover all different topics about hiring UX designers. So if you are a UX designer that is interested in entering the job market, if you are about the job, hunt. We cover all different types of strategies and techniques to be able to be hired either startups or bigger companies. Um, I don't want to do some too many spoilers, but uh, we have some FANG, F-A-A-N-G uh, representation. Uh, so it's going to be, it's going to be, some of the episodes are going to be super cool. Nice. Uh, and so, yeah. And so um, if you want to be, if you want to understand how you can move and what are things that you can do to be hired or at least boost your chance of being hired. Uh, you can definitely listen to our podcast. It's super cool. Season one was a little bit all over the place. It was an amazing season, but we didn't really have a focus. We talked about UX as a whole. Mm -hmm. Season two, the theme, the scope is exclusively UX hiring. So there's that. Nice. Come listen. Yeah, I mean, I've started. I've started on the one on um, the accessibility. I think she's working at as Appos. Oh yeah, um, Ali. Yeah, and and that's good so far. So I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. And absolutely, if anybody's interested in in the UX, um, uh, just UX world or the UX industry, definitely check out Felipe's podcast. Dude, accessibility is a, a thing in and of itself. Yeah, uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a huge thing. We we didn't even touch on it. There is like an entire. There will be another like two episodes to do on accessibility. No doubt, <laughs> to I've barely just, scratched the surface. I feel this very acutely now because I broke my um, I ruptured my Achilles. <laughs> Oh, oh no, man! That so takes I'm, a long time to heal. I'm in this freaking past <laughs> for three months, and I'm I'm very much realizing the world is is very much made for people with two feet. It's it's a lot yeah. harder when you don't have those. Well, it's made for a majority of people with two feet. You're totally right, yeah. Um, dude. Yeah, you know, I hope you, it heals fast and and uh, completely. I know that the Achilles is especially anything that happens to your feet. It, it takes especially long. I mean, especially to the Achilles because it's a tendon, so there's not a lot of blood going through it. And two, it's so far, so far from the heart that even this little blood that goes into that tendon takes a long time to uh, make the full round. So it takes yeah. a little bit. But uh, you know, wishing you all the best, man. It, it sucks. Thank you. It's, sure it's gotten me. Be, I'm, going, I'm sure you're going to be up and running in a, in no time. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. It's gotten me to think about user experience for sure. Um, the, just the, yeah. even the handle design, it, this is so aggressive. It's like very sharp. So if you use it for anything longer than 10 minute walk, your hands are just bruised. Um, so yeah, user experience is everywhere. Yeah. It's everything. Awesome. Um, thank you for joining me on this podcast, Filippo. It's been awesome having you. I'm sure the audience has learned a lot and, um, yeah, we'll let them know where to find you. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Love recording with you and good luck on the show. Good luck on StratFit. I hope you guys um, make it and uh, have a very successful product. It looks and behaves really, really well. That makes me, it makes me feel all warm and fuzzy that someone is actually innovating in retail finally. And you know, good luck with that. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The StrutFit Show. I've been your host, Ang Naya. And if you enjoyed it, if you found some parts where you were like, hmm, this has added some value to my life, then please share it with a few other people that you think would also value this information or that snippet. And when they like it as much as you did, I'm sure they'll thank you. If you're interested in what we're doing at StrutFit, head to our website at www.strut.fit to learn more and get in touch with us. If you want to get in contact with me directly, you can reach me at ang at strut.fit. All right, that's all folks. Till next time, take care.